All right, welcome to Understanding the End Time Lesson 11. This is a two-part series. Tonight's the second part of Becoming One World Religion. And I've got an article that I'll read once we get into the discussion part of how it, we're already seeing. Now, of course, remember, Irvin filmed this about 2010 or so, so we've advanced about 12, 13 years since he filmed this, 14 years maybe. Um, so now we're starting to see the things that he talked about back then. We're starting to see what Scripture says is going to happen. We're going to start seeing it happen, and I'm going to bring an article to the camera tonight when um, we get into the discussion part. Does anybody have anything before we start? All right. We'll get right into it. We'll start it here first. Our subject for today. Our subject for today, the coming one world religion, when all religions become one. The prophecy is Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So all will worship the Antichrist and his one world religious system except those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now the Bible teaches us that there's a penalty for all of those people that in fact do end up conforming to this one world religious system. Revelation 13, 15 tells us, and he, speaking of the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, the image of the Antichrist, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And then in Revelation 13, 16, it tells us another penalty. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So those who will not conform to the one world government and the one world religion, those who will not worship, will be killed or they will be placed under economic boycott. The prevailing theory today is that there are two root causes of war on earth. Conflicts between nations, conflicts between religions. The perceived solution is, well, let's just abolish nations and let's move into a new era of global governance. And furthermore, let's get rid of the conflict among religions by bringing about some form of religious agreement on earth. So one world government, one world religion, we will have banished war from the earth and we can then have peace. Now, in a previous lesson, we studied the prophecies about the coming one world government. It is going to happen. It's happening now. In this lesson today, we will learn what the prophecies actually say about the coming one world religion. 
to understand how all this will unfold, Mikhail Gorbachev wrote a book in 1987 called Perestroika. And he discussed in this book the dangers of religious exclusiveness. On page 231, he put together an all-embracing system of international security. He sent a copy to every head of state at the time. Item number four, double I, of this list was the extirpation of genocide, apartheid, and religious exclusiveness. To extirpate means to kill off. And so he was saying we must kill off, we must abolish all genocide, apartheid, and religious exclusiveness. Now it's interesting that he places religious exclusiveness in the same category as genocide. We know that genocide is causing physical harm or mental harm to a minority, whether it's a racial minority, a religious minority, a sexual minority, whatever it may be, but to cause physical harm, and this is the kicker, or mental harm. We're reaching the time in society now where you can perform a hate crime without ever hurting anyone. All you have to do is say the wrong things. Well, not only is there genocide mentally, but there is also harm against a person for religious exclusiveness. You're considered religiously exclusive if you believe that your religion is the only way and that people must be saved through a certain religion or else they're not saved at all. Uh, For example, Jesus Christ said, except you believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. Also in the scriptures, it tells us, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, these types of beliefs would be considered extreme religious exclusiveness because Jesus was religiously exclusive. He said, I am the door to the sheepfold. Anybody that climbs up any other way, the same is a thief and a robber. However, Mikhail Gorbachev said, we must abolish all religious exclusiveness and you need to embrace my religion is valid. I need to embrace your religion is valid, whether we believe it or not, because nobody knows the truth anyway. So my truth may not be your truth. That's the concept that's afloat today among the intelligentsia of our world. And it's filtering down into the general populace. So what's the perceived solution for religious exclusiveness? It's religious inclusiveness or interfaithism. That means your religion, if it's good for you, I respect it and I don't argue against it. You respect my religion. Everybody everybody respects everyone. We validate everyone and thus we remove religious conflict. Now this term interfaithism is somewhat of a new term among us. However, many of our huge uh, political leaders today actually embrace interfaithism. Uh, One of those is President George W. Bush. I have a clip for you showing his opinion about the religions of the world. Listen to it. Let me ask some questions about faith, which is a tough subject to talk about. Do we all worship the same God, Christian and Muslim? I think we do. Does. We have different routes of getting to the Almighty. Does bin Laden, does uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi pray to the same God that you and I do? Uh, I think they pray to a false God, otherwise they wouldn't be killing uh, innocent lives like they have been. Do Christians and non-Christians, do Muslims go to heaven in your mind? Yes, they do. We have different routes of getting there. But I I want you to understand, I want your listeners to understand, I don't get to decide who goes to heaven. 
I, I, the Almighty God decides who goes to heaven. So there you have it. President Bush says Muslims, Jews, Christians all pray to the same God. They're all going to heaven. That's what we call religious ex- inclusiveness or interfaithism. Now, our present president, Barack Obama, also believes in interfaithism and pushes it at every opportunity. At his inauguration, there were three inaugural services. At the first service, he had Muslims and Jews to pray. At the second inaugural service, he had a homosexual Episcopalian, Bishop Gene Robinson, to pray. At the third service, he had evangelical Rick Warren to pray. So President Obama was sending a very powerful message. All of these religions are legitimate, and I believe in interfaithism. Now, before we really understand interfaithism, however, let's look at the forerunner of interfaithism, ecumenism. Ecumenism is simply the movement promoting unity among Christian churches or denominations. The effort to unify all Christians and all Christian denominations began in earnest with Vatican Council II in 1962. From that council called by Pope John XXIII, the Roman Catholic Church issued the call for all of her departed daughters, speaking of the Protestants, to come home. The compelling argument behind the call to the Protestants was the words of Jesus himself, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's John 17, 21. Another passage says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, because you have loved one for another. The Catholic Church said, look, how can we ever win the world when we as Christians are so divided? And there was a powerful appeal to this because after all, who wouldn't want all Christians to be together? However, there was a problem. The fatal flaw of the ecumenical movement from the outset was that this call to unity was based on compromise rather than on the truth. Long-held biblical truths that our religious forefathers had worked and died for were cast aside like so much obsolete baggage. Now, if the call for unity had been based on truth, all of the religious people come together and let's deal with the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith and let's pray and let's study until we believe this is correct. This is what the Bible teaches. And then we all agree together. Then we could have had a true Christian rebirth. But it wasn't based on truth. It was based on compromise. Doctrine became almost a dirty word. But this was a bad thing because the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. So Paul taught Timothy that doctrine was essential for salvation. But in the ecumenical movement, doctrine became the blockade to unity. Well, it worked nonetheless because from 1962 until 1994, the ecumenical movement advanced rapidly. 
By 1994, Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, and even Jews began to exchange churches, synagogues, uh, pulpits. It was an amazing thing to watch this happen as it had never happened before. Well, finally in 1994, it was sort of the culmination of all the ecumenical efforts. On March the 29th of 1994, it was announced that an agreement had been signed between leading evangelicals such as Pat Robertson, Charles Colson, and Bill Bright, the founder of Crusade for Christ, and certain theologians in the Roman Catholic Church. This statement called Catholics and Protestants together basically said that since any person confessing faith in Jesus Christ is saved, that Catholics, Protestants, and evangelicals should no longer target each other's members for conversion. This agreement obviously presupposes that long-held doctrinal differences are no longer important and are merely divisive hindrances to Christian unity. Now, this statement announcing the signing of this document appeared in an article in the Indianapolis Star on March the 30th of 1994. It was titled, Catholics Evangelicals Affirm Ties That Bind. Well, about two and a half months later, in June of 1994, the Southern Baptist National Convention, America's largest Protestant denomination, voted overwhelmingly to endorse a declaration of unity with Catholics despite theological differences. The report in the June 17, 1994 edition of the Indianapolis Star said, in a major step toward ecumenism, the Southern Baptist said, born-again believers may be found in all Christian denominations and endorsed Baptist-Catholic dialogue. The title of the article, Southern Baptist Embraced Catholics, the largest Protestant denomination. Well, now, on 1999, the capstone of the ecumenical movement was put in place. Lutherans and Catholics signed a joint declaration on justification by faith. The announcement read, It is a blockbuster agreement, a crowning achievement of the ecumenical dialogue spawned by Vatican II. And it almost didn't happen. Despite his public image as an ecumenical roadblock, the man credited by sources on both sides with saving this document, this declaration, is none other than Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the head of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Well, that's the man who is now Pope Benedict XVI. The signing took place on October 31, the anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, which is credited with unleashing the Protestant Reformation. So here we are on the anniversary. The Protestant Reformation was over justification by faith. Martin Luther made the phrase famous, the just shall live by faith. Well, now then, Lutherans and Catholics have put together a theological paper agreeing on what that means. So the very thing that caused the Reformation now is put aside and agreed upon. So why shouldn't the churches reunite? That's what happened on October the 31st of 1999. So the issue that sparked the Reformation had been resolved. 
most Christian denominations considered other Christian groups as saved, ecumenism was considered by most to be an accomplished fact. So now the focus shifts from ecumenism to interfaithism. Now let's go back to the first interfaith meeting. 1893, the first parliament of the world's religions was held in Chicago. Its stated goal was to cultivate harmony among the world's religions and spiritual communities and foster their engagement with the world and its guiding institutions in order to achieve a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Well, actually, it was way ahead of its time because not much else happened on interfaithism uh, for 80 years or so. But in 1985, Pope John Paul II made the stunning announcement that he believed Muslims and Christians worship the same God. It was August of 1985 when Pope John Paul II visited Morocco at the invitation of King Hassan II. He became the first pope to visit an officially Islamic country at the invitation of its religious leader. There at a historic meeting with thousands of Muslim youth in Casablanca Stadium, he emphasized that we believe in the same God, the one God, the living God. Now think about this. Muslims and Christians believe in the same God. Christians believe Jesus is God. Muslims do not believe Jesus is God. Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross, and that's the only plan of redemption is through the blood of Calvary. Muslims deny that Jesus even died on the cross. So now we're taking huge leaps of blind faith here. Now this continued because in 1986, Pope John Paul II convened the World Day of Prayer. Pope John Paul was convinced that prayer could bring believers together, an idea that inspired the 1986 World Day of Prayer for Peace in Assisi, Italy. That unprecedented gathering at the Pope's invitation drew leaders of Jews, Buddhists, Shintoists, Muslims, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Unitarians, traditional African and Native American religions, and many others. Together under the roof of the Basilica of St. Francis, they all prayed side by side with Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant leaders for world peace. Now there's something feeling good about that. Uh, all of us, I think, would say, oh, isn't that a nice thing that everybody would drop their barriers and just get together and pray to whatever God uh, they happen to believe in. Before we decide this is good, though, I do want to ask you this question. Can you imagine the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament meeting for an uh, uh, interfaith prayer service with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves? I don't think so. We know he wouldn't do it if you know your Bible. So the question has to come to us. Was Elijah wrong then or are we wrong now? Now we need to ask ourselves that question because mankind has many times gone astray. Let's continue on. Finally in 1993, at the Parliament of the World's Religions held in Chicago on the 100th anniversary of the first Parliament of the World's Religions, uh, in Chicago as well. Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, 
Astorians, Wiccans, Wiccans are witches, by the way, indigenous people, and many others were in attendance. The 1993 Parliament of the World's Religions adopted a global ethic, which was authored by eminent Roman Catholic theologian Hans Kung. A global ethic is a global belief statement. The essence of the global ethic can be captured in three quotes from the document. One, we affirm that a common set of core values is found in the teachings of the religions and that these form the basis for a global ethic that all religions can agree, agree upon. Number two, there already exist ancient guidelines for human behavior which are found in the teachings of the religions of the world and which are the condition for a sustainable world order. Sustainable world order, I recognize that phrase. So that's where we're headed, right? Number three, we must sink our narrow differences for the cause of the world community, practicing a culture of solidarity and relatedness. Sink our narrow differences, narrow differences such as, was Jesus God or was he not? Was he the Messiah or was he not? Was he crucified on the cross or was he not? Or is Allah God or is Jehovah God or is Brahma God? Narrow differences is what they said in the global ethic. We must sink those narrow differences. Why? For the cause of the world community, for the cause of the one world government. Now, this is the thinking that drives interfaithism. Then, in 1994, the first new Roman Catholic catechism was published. I bought a copy because I was very interested in what it had to say about the relationship of the Catholic Church to the Muslims. On item number 841, under the Church's relationship with the Muslims, it states this, and I'm quoting, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. So is the Catholic Catechism say the plan of salvation also includes in the first place the Muslims just because they worship claim to worship the God of Abraham as we do? That's what it was saying. Another huge leap into interfaithism. Mr. Robert Mueller was an assistant secretary general to three secretary generals at the United Nations. He worked at the UN for 38 years. I was interviewing him on our radio program, Politics and Religion, and uh, he stated to me, we have brought the world together as far as we can politically. He openly advocated a one world government, but he said, we're, we're stuck. We can't go any further because to bring about a true world government, the world must be brought together spiritually. Then he said, what we need is a United Nations of religions. He said, the political leaders meet every day at the United Nations. They talk together. Until today, we have such a consensus of opinion that we actually have a world community. The world community says this. The world community says that. But he said, the religious leaders won't even speak to one another most of the time. We need a United Nations of religions. Well, I wasn't very surprised a couple of years later when I saw the announcement that an ecumenical service for political leaders and religious leaders would be held in San Francisco to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter. It was June 26, 1995, exactly 50 years after the UN Charter was signed. This was hosted by Bishop William Swing of Grace Episcopal Church in San Francisco at the request of the UN. 
people attending were UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali, Princess Margaret of Great Britain, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, President Lech Walesa of Poland, and many other international dignitaries. Well, after this ecumenical meeting, Bishop Swing, who was in charge, decided out of that service that he should investigate the possibility of establishing a United Religions Organization or a United Nations of Religions. He traveled during 1996. He visited such people as Pope John Paul II, Bishop Desmond Tutu, Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. And coming back from that meeting, those meetings, he reported that the reception was overwhelming to the idea. Consequently, in 1997, Reverend Swing decided to hold the first charter writing conference for the United Religions Organization. Then in 1998, he held the second charter writing conference. Finally, they had the charter finished. Now, at these conferences, there were Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, indigenous people, Wiccans. They were all there. Well, finally, he finished the charter by the year 2000. They were going to have a huge charter signing conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. At the meeting, I happened to be there. A call came from the United Nations. A Hindu lady was praying there. The call from the United Nations congratulated the United Religions on its accomplishment. The Hindu lady praying, uh, she sat in the lotus position on the stool and she began to pray. And after praying a while, all of a sudden she said, Om. And I heard her echo from the congregation, Om. And then she said it louder, Om. And the refrain came back louder. And before long, the whole place was Oming. And I realized I was in the middle of an ecumenical prayer service. Finally, the service concluded by the Jewish blowing of the shofar. It was an amazing event. It was the the charter signing of the United Religions Organization. We're going to continue on looking at interfaithism because what happened after the United Religions was formed in the year 2000, about three months later, in August of 2000, there was a meeting held at the United Nations called the Millennium World Peace Summit. This was the first ever religious meeting held at the United Nations. It was held one week before the Millennium Summit for the world's political leaders. Now, the concept behind this meeting was we need to bring about cooperation between the religious leaders of the world and the political leaders of the world. This meeting was sponsored by Mr. Ted Turner, who had gifted $1 billion to the United Nations. And because he put up the money, Ted Turner was the keynote speaker for the meeting. There were about a thousand religious leaders from all over the world in attendance. The goal of the World Peace Summit was to convene and to coordinate religious and spiritual leadership in an, as an interfaith ally to the United Nations in its quest for peace, global understanding, and international cooperation. Well, the outcome of the World Peace Summit, and remember, this is the year 2000. This is the turn of the millennium. It only comes once every 1,000 years. So expectations were very high. At this meeting, the religious leaders signed a declaration for world peace, number one. And they also established, this is probably more importantly, an International Advisory Council of Religious Leaders, a liaison between the religious leaders of the world and the political leaders of the world. The purpose was to engage 
religious leaders in promoting the plans of the world community or the one world government instead of working against them. The reason this is so important is because the political leaders realized the religious leaders could sabotage their efforts. The religious leaders, after all, are in pulpits looking eye to eye with their people every week. Plus, they're dedicating their babies, they're marrying their young people, they're burying their dead, they're in their homes. Their influence is so vast. Of course, this is what uh, Mr. Robert Mueller said when he said, we need a United Nations of Religions. So they established this liaison council to consult continually with the political leaders of the world in order to bring about this union between politics and religion, between the political powers of the world and the religious leaders of the world. So it was mission accomplished. They did set that up. One week later, the political leaders converged upon the United Nations for the UN Millennium Summit. Again, this was the turn of the millennium. Expectations were very high. Attendance was very high. They did several things at this meeting, but the main thing they did was to adopt what was called the Millennium Development Goals. There are eight MDGs, such as Sustainable Development global partnership, and other things. You can read about all those if you go to the UN webpage. But the real agenda for the New World Order was to set the Millennium Development Goals and then all the nations of the world would work together in concert to reach these goals. So what happened is they actually adopted a program, an agenda for the one world governmental system. And built into the Millennium Development Goals was a plan for massive wealth redistribution. Well, massive wealth redistribution, as you know, is the central plank in the international platform for international socialism or communism. So now we have set the goal of an international socialist agenda all to be administered by the United Nations and to be cooperated with by the religions of the world. Well, the interface efforts continued on, and in 2002, Pope John Paul II once again led an interfaith service at Assisi, Italy. So the concept of being sown, it is being promoted, interfaithism. Tony Blair, a very influential leader in our world that all of us are very familiar with, was the Prime Minister of Great Britain for many years. However, in 2007, he announced he would be leaving the Prime Minister's office. It also was rumored that he would convert to Catholicism. Now, he didn't do this while he was in office because the Prime Minister of Great Britain is the head of the Episcopalian or the Anglican Church. So he waited until he left office, and then within a few months, he did, in fact, convert to Catholicism. But that wasn't all of the story, because the next year, 2008, he founded a new organization called the Tony Blair Faith foundation. And he said, because of globalization, moving us all closer together, we need a foundation that will re-educate the world so that religions can learn how to get along together in this ever closer society. He actually launched a curriculum at Yale University called Faith and Globalization, and he became a guest lecturer there. The course has since spread to other prestigious colleges as well. 
Now beyond that, in 2010, realizing he needed to reach more than a few prestigious colleges, he launched a new curriculum called Face to Faith. It was a project to reach the high schoolers of our world. He entered into a partnership with Bill Clinton and his Clinton Global Initiative, and they decided to take this new curriculum and promote it to schools worldwide. Now, the plan is this. Every student will have a computer on their desk. It will be linked to a person of another religion somewhere around the world. A Christian will be linked to a Muslim or a Muslim to a Buddhist or a Buddhist to a Jew. And these young people will then discuss with one another, get to know each other, and especially emphasize their common points of agreement so that possibly we can draw closer together. Now, remember the global ethic that Mr. Hans Kuhn penned? This is part of the area with so much we agree on that we need to sink the narrow differences that keep us apart so that we, in fact, can form a global community. The dream is one world government and one world religion. Well, here you see the culmination of the interfaith movement. Pope John Paul II, this happened actually May the 6th of 2001, at a mosque in Damascus, Syria. Pope John Paul is seen kissing the Koran. Amazing. It's almost hard to believe. Well, the latest development on interfaithism, in 2011, Pope Benedict XVI has already announced he will return to Assisi, Italy, and invite all of the religions there once again for a common prayer time. Okay, let's pause and let's assess what we're actually talking about here. Interfaithism realizes there are two major religions on the earth. Islam and Christianity. Islam claims about 1.57 billion followers, which is 23% of the world's population. Christianity claims 2.2 billion followers, which is 33% of the world's population. So you've got 1.1 billion Catholics, 1.1 billion Protestants. Together between Islam and Christianity, you have 56% of the world's population. So the interfaithists say, if we can just get cooperation between the Muslims and the Christians, if these two religions could form an alliance together, they could bring the entire world together. But now we have to ask, will interfaithism be successful? European leaders are in agreement that multiculturalism has failed. I mean, for some time in Europe especially, it's so filled with Islam that the leaders of Europe were trying to be broad-minded and magnanimous, and so they made special leeway for the Islamists. But what they found was that the Muslims did not want to integrate into French society, German society, British society. They wanted to come in and be so strong that they would change the society, the society to be like them. So recently, French President Nicolas Sarkozy has followed the lead of British Prime Minister David Cameron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Sarkozy said, it's a failure. The truth is that in all our democracies, we've been too concerned about the identity of new arrivals and not enough about the identity of the country receiving them. Merkel contends multiculturalism has totally failed in Germany. Cameron of Great Britain says it has left young British Muslims vulnerable 
to radicalism. So has interfaithism failed? Will it be the religion of the Antichrist and the false prophet of the end-time one-world government and the one-world religion? Or if it's failed, what can we expect to actually happen? Well, there have been many articles written in the last few years about a possible clash of civilizations because the world of Islam is so different and so strong in its beliefs to the Western societies. Many people have said it's never going to work. Eventually, there's going to be a war, a clash. Well, the Bible happens to prophesy just such a war. It's Revelation chapter number 9, verse 13 through 16. And it states there, a war is coming. In verse 15, it says that a war is coming that will kill one-third of mankind. One-third of the human race will be wiped out in this unprecedented war. Now, I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says, and the prophecies always come to pass. World War III, according to this passage, will start from the Euphrates River. Let me point out to you that 100% of the Euphrates River is Muslim. Turkey is 99% Muslim. Syria is 92% Muslim. Iraq is 98% Muslim. So every inch of the Euphrates River is controlled by Islam. And it says in the passage in Revelation 9, 13 through 16, that this war will start from that area where we're experiencing all kinds of turmoil right now. So the war is going to be involving Islam and the United States will undoubtedly be involved because we are the prominent force in the Middle East right now. We have troops everywhere. We have 236,000 troops stationed in the Euphrates River Basin right now. We're involved in every conflict, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, wherever you want to talk, Libya, uh, the United States ends up being involved. And also, the United States has the nuclear firepower to kill one-third of mankind. What will happen as a result of this war? It appears from the prophecies that Islam will make up a large percentage of the 2.3 billion killed. Now, Islam has a population of 1.57 billion. That means a lot more than Islam has to be killed. But it appears from the prophecies that Islam will be largely eliminated in this war that is soon to come. Now, how do we know this for sure? Well, because we have two prophetic pictures of the world after World War III. We have two specific snapshots of the world during the final three and a half years, right before the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 13 depicts two beasts in alliance together. The first beast represents the one world government of the Antichrist, and the second beast portrays the one world religion led by the false prophet. Well, the same picture as is given in Revelation 13 is also given in Revelation 17 through 18. It prophesies an alliance between a world government and a world religion. Now, both of these prophecies portray the world as it will be just before Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, pause just a moment to notice how much space in the book of Revelation is devoted to the coming global religious system. Apparently, it's really important for all of us who live in the end time to understand the role of this one world religion. By the way, it will not be the true religion. It will be a false religion. So it's like there's a warning come from God. Three whole chapters at least 
devoted to the one world religious system out of the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. So we need to realize that. Okay, now let's look at the prophecy of the coming one world religion. First of all, a warning. Most Christians, both Protestants and Catholic, will become part of this one world religion. And I hate to tell you that because I'm a Christian myself. And when I think about most Christians being involved in this one world religious system in cooperating with the Antichrist, it gives me pain. But I have to tell you the truth because this is what the Bible says is going to happen. And the prophecies are never wrong. In Revelation 17, 1 through 3, we see a very specific prophecy about the end time one world religion. Verse number 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, that's a red beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The first thing I want you to notice is that the, the person speaking said to John, I will show thee the judgment of the great harlot. So this is a warning that judgment is coming. Now, continuing on, let me remind you that this beast of Revelation 17 is the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast that symbolizes world government in Revelation 13. So the beast of Revelation 17 and the beast of Revelation 13 is the same beast. And let me remind you, the beast in Revelation 13 has the body of the leopard, Germany, the feet of the bear, Russia, the mouth of the lion, Great Britain, and the ten horns of the ten horn kingdom, a ten nation alliance that will come out of the European Union. So this is very much a European-centered one world governmental system. That's the beast of Revelation 13. Now in Revelation 17, we're told something we were not told in Revelation 13. The color of the beast is red. Red in the Bible is used to symbolize socialism or communism. So the world government of the Antichrist and the false prophet will be a socialist government. And that shouldn't surprise us because most of the nations of the world today are socialistic and the ones who are not yet are moving quickly in that direction. We're hearing continually so much promotion of wealth redistribution, which is socialism, of course. And as we move further into the end time world government, we will be hearing that more and more and more. Okay, now back to Revelation 17. In that prophecy, there's a woman riding on the back of this world government beast. And in order to understand this part of the prophecy, we know a beast always symbolizes a nation along with the ruler of that nation. But in order to understand the woman, God always uses a woman to symbolize a church in Scripture. He uses a virgin for a true church. Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that they may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, he also uses a woman to symbolize a backslidden church, but he doesn't use a virgin. He uses a harlot. When Israel in the Old Testament backslid, God said that she committed whoredoms. For example, Judges 2.17. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went 
a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. So when we see this harlot, it's a prophecy of a backslidden church. In the prophecy of Revelation 17, backslidden Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, is shown riding the world government beast of the end time. Now, this foretells once again the alliance between the world government of the Antichrist and the one world religion of the false prophet. Most Christians will follow the false prophet into the arms of the Antichrist and the one world governmental system. And that is such a bad report to give you, but that is what the Bible teaches. Now, to make sure we really understand the identity of this woman so that you can put your finger on it and know for sure, note that we look, first of all, let's look at Catholicism's role in the backslidden church of the end time. This is a woman we can find out her identity. Revelation 17, 18 tells us, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So point number one, the woman is a city. It's easy. However, the Bible also tells us that the woman sits upon many waters. That's in verse number one. So what do the waters symbolize? The 15th verse of Revelation 17 tells us, the waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the woman is a city and yet she presides over a vast international system of peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now the beast has seven heads. In this prophecy, the seven heads have a special meaning. Verse number nine tells us that meaning. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, the woman's a city, right? It's what we learned in verse number 18. So, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the city sitteth. I'd heard all my life that Rome was the city of seven hills, but I wanted to know that that was really true for myself. So, I went off to the library and I opened the encyclopedia to Rome, and there it was Rome, the city of seven hills. Well, I was really shocked. When I stood in Rome in 1993, my Roman Catholic guide, he gathered all of us uh, outside the Colosseum, and he proudly said, if you'll look here, you can see several of the famous seven hills of Rome. And he said, there's Avignon, there's Palatine, and he went around naming the seven hills. And I already knew this scripture, and I, my eyes are getting bigger, and I am absolutely shocked at what I am hearing. Another clue to the identity of the woman is verse number four. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now we know there are two ruling bodies in the Roman church, the College of Cardinals and the College of Bishops. It is church official policy that cardinals wear red while bishops and non-cardinal archbishops wear purple. If you'd like to check that out, it's in an article, More Than You Wanted to Know About Cardinals, from the Criterion, July 1, 1988. Okay, now that's the Catholic side of the Christian prophecy. Let's now take a look at the Protestant role in the backslidden end-time church. Verse number 5, And upon her forehead, the harlot's forehead, was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother 
of harlots and abominations of the earth. What do you mean? You mean she's a harlot, but she also has daughters and they also are symbolized as harlots, which means that they are backslidden churches as well. That's what it means. Now in Vatican II, there was a statement issued. We, the mother church, are opening our arms for our Protestant daughters to return home. And there was so much dispute over how these Protestant churches should be addressed from the Roman Catholic perspective that there was actually a note published called Expression Sister Churches. Here's what it said, and I'm quoting. It must always be clear when the expression sister churches is used in this proper sense that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not sister, but mother of all the particular churches. A statement by Cardinal Ratzinger. That comes from item number 10, June 30, 2000, from catholicculture.org. Need I remind you that Cardinal Ratzinger is now Pope Benedict XVI, and he believes that the Roman Catholic Church is the mother church and all the Protestants are the daughters. It says it right here. You can see the quote for yourself. Okay. Now, the shocking thing about all this is the Bible teaches that backslidden Christianity will participate in the Great Tribulation. I wish this were not true. As a Christian, it would be so much easier for me to say, oh, the Muslims are going to perpetrate the Great Tribulation upon the earth. But I can't tell you that because the prophecy tells a different story and the prophecies always come to pass. I owe it to you and to myself to tell you what the Bible says. And even though sometimes you say, I can't see how we're going to get there from here, if the Bible says it, you can count on it. It is going to come to pass. Do we have any history of Christians persecuting Christians before? We certainly do. I mean, there's been examples of Protestants persecuting Catholics. In 1563, anti-Catholicism in England flamed uh, when John Fox's Book of Martyrs was published. Also, Catholics have persecuted Protestants during the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, There was no religion outside of Catholicism that was allowed. People were burned at the stake. Okay, so what do we do then? What does the Bible tell us to do if this is what's happening in Christianity today? Revelation 18.4 tells us. Here's the answer. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. We have to have a return to true biblical Christianity. How can we do this? We need to return to studying our Bibles, not necessarily our religious books, humble ourselves in daily prayer, return to the pattern set by us for us in the book of Acts. Let's have a true end time Christian revival and let's do it together. All right. So that was part two of our coming one world religion. Um, I'm going to read the verse that he started off with because I have an article that goes right along with what he was saying. And it's talking about uh, the false prophet. Here. He's going to have everybody 
And, sh and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So if your name is not written in the book of life, most likely you are going to be falling underneath the one world religion. So let's see if this seems like we're heading in that direction. Now this is news in the United Kingdom. And the, this is from World Net Daily. And it says, um, the title is, 1984 is here. COP demands, what is the nature of your prayer today? Now this is the second article. I don't know if I brought the other one to this microphone or not, but this is the second article that I've read in just a few days. Um, a very similar fashion. So... Let me bring this to you, and uh, for the second time in just weeks, a resident of Britain has been punished for his thoughts, actually his prayers. The report explained that once again, England delivers a reminder of why we broke up with them, and we are never, ever, ever getting back together. And from Scripture, I don't know who this person is that said it, but whoever the reporter is, but... Scripturally, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. I don't know if they realized how true their statement is. But the UK police fined and harassed another person for praying in public, silently praying. The kind of praying where the words don't make any sounds. The rub is, he was praying in a specific area where no prayer is allowed. Nothing is allowed there. The report explained the police caught the veteran praying in a space covered by a public space protection order that bans prayer. Um, we seem to be having similar laws being interpreted that way with this administration and the Department of Justice going after people that seem to be anywhere near an abortion facility that are conservative or um, protesting in any manner, even if it's um, just silently, you know, just quietly praying, or they're not tolerating anything near an abortion clinic in this country. Now, we haven't gone quite to the extent of this, but we're getting pretty close. This report continues. Um, as Americans start to rediscover prayer over an injured football player, more people in the UK are discovering that standing on the street in silence is against the law if you are standing too close to an abortion clinic and thinking about God. In England, this makes sense to people. World Net Daily reported on the earlier case where a woman was arrested and charged with four counts for what she was praying silently. The Daily Caller News... Um, foundation had reported when she was blockaded by police who grilled her about her thoughts. <laughs> she was in the proximity of a UK abortion business at that time, and she's the UK March for Life director. The report said Isabel Vaughn Spruce, a charity volunteer and Christian, 
was approached by police officers outside of BPAS Robert Clinic in Birmingham, England, and asked if she was praying, according to the press release. Vaughn Spruce told the officers she, quote, might be praying silently, quote, unquote, and was later arrested. She explains, I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that I've been arrested for silent thoughts going on in the privacy of my own head. <laughs> now, the penalty for this, as we get further down the road, is going to become worse and worse and worse. At the time the Antichrist takes control, this may get you the death penalty. Because there will be no toleration for religious ex in, uh, exclusivity. Exclusiveness. Was Jesus religiously inclusive or exclusive? Exclusive. He was religiously exclusive. There's only one way to heaven. And any other way, there's a lot of people that are going to try another way. Do you have Matthew 7? Now, I want you to pay attention to this because this is talking about uh, not only at the time this was written, but on down through time. And it's especially going to be true in the time just ahead, but it's going to tell us that the majority of people that consider themselves Christians are going to be lost. And it's talking about people that consider themselves Christians as a whole. But go ahead, Matthew 7, this is 13 through 15. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go therein, which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And 16 is, ye shall know them by their fruits. So, 15 tells us that he's specifically talking about Christians. Beware of false prophets. He's not talking about the population in general. We already know that. But people that want to put themselves under the banner, banner of being a Christian, but we're all saved no matter how. You know, early on in the video, he talked about um, these these religious leaders that say that, that he's the God of mercy, and he is. But don't forget, he's also the God of the Old Testament that shut the door on the ark and let the entire population of the world drown. And I'll promise you the world population was enough that there were probably babies born every day at that point. Um, so there were little babies drowning. And in, in God's overall knowledge and sight, his, his ways are higher than ours. It was just. And only eight people survived that. And you can imagine that there were people clawing and scratching to get into the ark. It wasn't just calm boat lifting and and there were people dying around it. So, he's a merciful God, but he's a just God. And there's coming a time when the unsaved religious world is going to be killing people that are lining up too strictly with what the books, with what the scriptures say. And that time is coming just ahead. And the reason I brought this article up, because it is in the United Kingdom, which is going to be heavily under the foot of the Antichrist at that time. That's going to be his power base, is the old Holy Roman Empire. So the reason I brought that article up is because it's right in the middle of it.
Anybody have anything? Is this going to be a short night? No, I, uh, so the United, is it United Nations? That's where she was praying in her head? No, that was the United Kingdom. United Kingdom. Okay. Um, so talking about one world religion. So do you know, I was looking it up. Do you know anything about the Abrahamic family house? No, I've never heard of it. Okay, so that construction is started. It's in Abu Dhabi, and it is going to be where the the One World Religion headquarters are going to be. So there will be three separate buildings there, and it's under the UAE, which I looked up, and is the United Arab Emirates. Emirates. Um, so back, let's see, when was it? In... 2021 i think pope francis maybe it was before then and sunny muslim leader sheikh amin al-tayyab they signed this agreement and so i was reading about it and it's just funny some of the stuff that it says that is going to go on there but there'll be three buildings one will be for for the christian but they're not allowed to put a cross on the outside of the building to signify it's illegal to do that in Abu Dhabi and the, and the UAE. And then there will be a mosque and there will also be um, a synagogue. So there'll be three different buildings, but um, the church, they're not allowed to put the cross on there. And also in the UAE, it's illegal to convert somebody to Christianity. Right. So now there the 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 rules or whatever of these three buildings, anybody can convert to Islam, but the citizens, because it's illegal in the UAE, they're not allowed to convert to Christ. They're not allowed to choose Christ. They can't wow. they have to yeah. In several Muslim countries it's that way. And then also the UAE is under the Sharia. Sharia. Sharia mm -hmm. law. Um, yeah, there's a lot of contradictions in what's going on with these. If you read the article that I pulled up, these buildings, but it is, you can see like what it's supposed to look like. And then you can see like where they've started pictures of the construction that started. And uh, it's supposed to be finished this year. That'll be interesting to look up. No, it's in Abu Dhabi. Where's Abu Dhabi? Saudi Arabia. Okay. You said it was in the UAE, though. It, it's under the UAE. Okay. Is what they said, which I guess is Abu Dhabi is part of the UAE. So, so that was interesting. Wow. There's times, though, you know, the, for the people that are involved in you know, when they start killing people for praying. To me, that's the way to do it. Well, the tough thing is going I mean, to be... I, I don't... It sounds kind of maybe weird, but it's like... If you're going to die for praying, that's the way to go, you know? It's one thing to do it to me, but it's another thing to do it to my kids in front of me. That's hard. That's the hard one. They can do to me what they want. 
but I don't want to see harm come to my, I'm not saying I would change my mind. I'm just saying it would be hard. Very hard. And is it going to be just a clean cut death? You know, that's what's going to make it even, is it, you know, just going to be, you know, well, I know, saw a shooting. Video. Is it going to, you know, are they going to take a, like, you don't know. What no, they're you know going it'll to be do. different. I'm sure. I watched a video where some Muslims burned a Christian to death in a. He was in a. They had him in a cage, doused him with gasoline and lit it. And of course, he. It only took a minute or two for him to burn to death, but that would be a miserable. That would be the longest minute of your life. Um, and then you know, like the stoning. You know, I don't know if they would do stonings, but. They still we'll do that. that. They still do that in the Arab countries, and in those, they like if it's a if it's a sister or a, a mother or somebody that is being stoned, they make the family throw this like the sons and the brothers and the father. They have to throw like the first stones. <laughs> Usually, that's kind of like how it goes. It's just just the level of just mental. Where they their mind goes for cruel torture is just mm -hmm. people. On the news, state, I'm told I like to listen to Fox, but it's talking about in the schools what they're doing, and it was saying there that they would put these videos of different face Muslim, and the kids would have to sit and watch those, and then talk about. It was just saying on on the video, and the kids would have to talk about how they have similarities with that faith. Well, I've not heard of that happening here in our schools, but I'd imagine they're probably heading fast to you. There was a program put that was spearheaded by Tony Blair, who used to be the prime minister of Great Britain, and he launched um, an interfaith yeah, he talked in about education that. on this. He talked about yeah. it. I think it was Tony Blair that it was called yeah. Face to Faith. Yeah. That's what it would, is. I was just talking. About, that's what I was just talking. Where about. they would show the similarities. Yeah, that's just, what I was just talking. Saying, yeah. To kind of bring some of those walls of hatred down, and and I don't have anything against bringing down the level of hatred in this world. I'm all for that. But God forbid I tell somebody something that they're not going to be true. saved. There's no similarities. No, there isn't. But I'm saying there's nothing wrong with bringing the level of hatred down. Right. Right. But what people will say is, even though they call him Allah, we call him God, it's the same. Well, is what they say. One of the things, I just pulled this up, it says, though this is usually not enforced, but, and this is, this is under the Abrahamic family house, like, rules or whatever. Um, though usually not enforced, teaching that Jesus is the only God is considered to be an act of insulting Allah or the Prophet Muhammad. And offenders can be subject to imprisonment or for five or more years or fined from 250,000 dir dirhams, which is basically 68, about $68,000 of our money, to $545,000 of our money. And Christians may be deported. To add to the confusion of bringing understanding and tolerance, the Muslim leader... Al-Tayyab, who is widely touted as a moderate Muslim, strongly believes that Muslims who convert from Islam to any other religion should be killed. 
And he's he's a moderate. He's not rad according to them. He's well, not like the leader of the one world government will soon, when that right person is there, will soon agree with that. According to what he was saying, though, he believes that uh, two thirds, the two thirds that are going to die are Muslims. That's what. Um, well, Baxter was talking. I didn't. Again, I didn't catch it. I had some other stuff going on, but um, there was a time when he thought was thinking that this war is going to that kills a third of the human race is going to be largely in the Islamic community. And I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. Um, we know that the majority of the nations that come against Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon um, are going to be Muslim-type countries. Well, if Muslimism is pretty much wiped off the face of the earth, they wouldn't have any need to come after the Jews. And Rand wouldn't care if they were pretty much annihilated or had switched faiths. So I don't really see it that way. But, um, or well, so if it's a one world order, one world religion, and we're everybody's pretty much in agreement that it's the Roman Catholic Church, then it, it could very well be. Well, there are nations that don't go hand in hand with the United Nations, Iran is being one of them. Um, however, there are things that they will agree with the UN on, like. The majority of the laws of the UN have gone against the nation of Israel. The majority of them. This little bitty nation, one of the smallest nations on the face of the earth, and the majority of the laws of the UN Security Council have gone against the nation of Israel more than any other nation. Yeah. So, um, it's almost like the United Nations was built to go against the nation of Israel. In fact, the ending result is going to be that, but so what the United Nations is going to end up using to go against Israel or against Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon, Iran is simply going to agree with that, whether they're under the same religious uh, inclusiveness or not. But we saw a report on there where some of the Muslim leaders signed a pact with the Catholic Pope. So... They are trying to find some common ground, but I guarantee you the mullahs of Iran don't agree with that. Unless they're overthrown by then. Um, what they were actually talking about on that news um, podcast that I was hearing today was, um, oh, wait, let me think. Oh, the people were, the parents were getting up in arms about them. Um, and I, you may have talked about this before, about them doing away with the, um, what do you call it, the, the reward system or whatever. Merit? Merit system. Because they don't want, they want everybody to be on the same page. And they said that's impossible. That's impossible unless you want everybody to just do rotten and right. do no good at all. Everybody be on the same page. She said every parent wants, obviously, wants their kid to do their very best and whatever. And she was saying a lot of people are going to homeschooling because of this mess. Like the parents are all up in arms about them, insisting that all kids are on the same page. Well, so like you can't have like, I got yellow today and 
I never get green because I always get yellow and yeah. Yeah. Or they can't be honored for their good grades or their good ac academic, whatever. They no, can't be honored for anything. No honor society, no yeah, nothing. List. Everybody gets a medal, even if your team loses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can do, be great and honored, even though you're, you don't give a rat's butt and don't do anything at all. Mm -hmm. And to me, that just falls right in line with this religious thing. They can pull these videos or whatever they're saying they're going to do pull these videos into these classes and these kids get to sit around and discuss how we're similar with that faith that they yep. just talked about. Water it down. Yeah. So until nobody is saved. Yep. And then I was thinking really, so, and I forget what they were saying on there, but I thought, okay, so we can't, we can't disagree. We have to agree with that, but who's deciding what's true then and what we have to agree with and how many times has truth changed in the last 10 years <laughs> exactly yeah and now they're saying your truth isn't my truth so there's but, no foundation for uh, truth but on the on other that, spectrum on my truth can be that i identify as a cat right and i and you have to respect that well at least a leopard you have a leopard a leopard on. yeah or oh, that's a cat a cat yeah or you know, I could say, all right, I, I want to be Michael instead of Michelle. And you have to respect that because mm -hmm. that's my truth. It, it's it's so double standard and so double minded, but it's just what it is. And not only that, you, ha you and then you insist that I play along with your yeah. imaginary. If you whatever. don't if you don't refer to me in the right pronoun or if you don't oh. if you don't refer to me as, you know, good girl, you know, like mm -hmm. fetch then I'm offended that you're not respecting me and and my truth. And under the genocide pact, that would be illegal because <laughs> I'm mentally harassing you. And what if I just yeah, didn't realize? Yeah. What if I just didn't realize you're actually want to be called a he instead of a she? You shouldn't assume. He he wants he wants to play ball with us. Or she does. Oh, I just said she or you want to be a he. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wanted to be a he. So you get to go to jail or whatever. But then if you assume and you're trying to be careful and say like it, they, right. them, they. then that, I could be like, that's not my pronoun. That's not my pronoun. And I could be just as mentally harassed by that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. And that's, you see what happens when you get out of truth. Everything stupid. It gets stupid. Nothing makes extreme sense. narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying that's not my name. That's not my pronoun. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing that already. And if I'm calling oh, yeah. out to you and you're walk, if you're walking ahead of me and you don't see something coming, and I holler at you, "Hey, uh, sir or ma'am, whatever," <laughs> trying to get your attention to stop you from being hurt. What if you just go? Hey. And you got a name tag on that says, "Hey, oh, my pronouns are this," but I can't see that. I'm behind you. Just go, hey, hey. So name tags don't work. Hey, hey. you, 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 hey, you. <laughs> but that means I may not be a you. I'm a. I'm a Y. <laughs> I'm a dinosaur today. I'm not a you. So don't yeah. call me a you. Right. Did you mean that as Y-O-U or E-W-E? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just gotten crazy. And right? that's what they were talking about. What uh, Tuesday, she was watching the same, you know, box again. And they were saying, this is this has just gotten carried away. She said, it, people can go, you offended me. 
and she said, and then you can get in trouble because you offended them over something stupid. You don't even know, you know. But, you know, we're coming also into a time because of this nonsense that people that are that have the ability to stand back and just look at everything, becoming more black and white. Okay, that's nonsense. People that tend to be in a true type church aren't going for that. So this black, everything is becoming more black and white. And you can see truth is shining more now. There's not as much gray. Everything is starting to <clears throat> be more black and white. You know what? In the, you, you said it earlier. All will worship him whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It also says, and all the world wandered after the beast. All the world. Yep. And you're like, how is it these old timers that believed in solid truths? You look at them and they're like, well, they changed their mind too about, well, you know, we really can't talk about um, if they decide they want to be a male instead of a female. We can't really talk about if they decide they want to go with a male when they are a male. We can't really say, you know, we can't, can't, we can't judge, we can't judge them. You know, and I'm like, you're 75, 80 years old. I thought you had some solid truths in your life. Well, I think sometimes... You know what I'm saying? I think sometimes I've, I've seen as... I've seen it in my family, um, extended family, people that um, were very outspoken and bold in their thoughts and in their opinions. As they get older, this fear sets in because, you know... Nobody wants to hear them. No, yeah, like you don't have that platform you used to have. Mm -hmm. You're not needed like you were needed before. And you're, you know, your next move is into the nursing home mm -hmm. or who's going to take care of you. So sure. you have to kind of comply and and go against maybe what you would be outspoken about. Because if your family just is like, okay, well, they're, you know, we're not going to deal with you, then you're all alone. And that's a fear for a yeah. lot of older people to just be left alone and not yeah. have. This is coming from it's an older true. person. Go ahead. My, it's true. my grandma. She lived in a nursing home for years. Never. Never changed her mind on... Never did. But the she was already in the nursing home. I'm talking about like some of these family members that are afraid of being put in a nursing home or being shunned from their family. You know, I guess once you're in there, you're in there and... Yeah, they're very opinionated in the nursing home. <laughs> no, I'm saying, but even, you know, well, maybe when she was put in, it was different. I can't, to me, I just, well, the time I don't care where I'm at. Yeah. I, got, right. I don't care where I'm at. I got my opinions, and I'm going to keep them. Yeah. There ain't no nursing home, no prison, no. Yeah, but I mean, right, for us, but there, there's a whole lot of, people that it surprised me with some family where it was like I've seen them where I'm like I know they don't agree with that I know but because they're afraid of being shunned by family or losing you know losing relationships and that'll they be the will same not speak, they will not speak out and they will look compliant mm -hmm. because of the fear mm -hmm. of being separated from oh, their yeah. family and not having anybody yeah. not having anybody being just alone and that same mindset will cause people to take the mark of the yes beast. yeah yeah 
Yep. Well, you look at even people our age or younger, 20s or 30s even. You're a big group of people, and they're all going, yeah, we, you know, we're all agreeing on whatever the big thing is. And you don't. You're sitting off in the corner going, e but you're not going to say anything. Nah. Catlin and I were at the coffee shop yesterday, and there was a guy in there, I'd say, in his... He was 70-something. Definitely in his 70s, babbling the most stupid, nonsensical, political lost stuff it was worse before you got there oh, i can imagine uh, i saw what idiocy was coming out of his mouth then and it's just there's no you know the only thing worse than a fool is an old fool yeah yeah but there are still some that will that are very bold and they don't they just don't care but i have seen a lot of people personally that i know where i'm just like you know or you know i know their opinion on something and because they've been pressured by family or I can't go around family if I don't, then they they go against what their core belief is. And you're right, that will definitely be a big issue. And scripture says that you'll have to there's times you may have to forsake your family. But, oh yeah. You know, our as as Christians, as apostolic Christians, aren't we not supposed you know, aren't we supposed to be bold? You know, be bold in your faith. Be bold in what you believe. I don't now. When I say that, if so, I don't go trying to, I've told this a lot to a lot of different people. I don't go trying to shove something down somebody's throat. Right. However, if they ask me a question, I got no problem telling them. Yep. Well, you know, it's it to me. There's a. There's a level of respect that you have to show somebody. I, I I understand that, but you know you have to be bold and and be able to say you know that's what you believe, but this is what I believe, and that's you know was hasn't he been kind of teaching and preaching on it? You know we we're supposed to be bold. We we want to see revival. We want to see all these with. In order to see that and see new people, well, you have to be bold and talk to somebody. I'm going to bring this up, and I'm going to be very careful with my wording. But, yes, I agree that as Pentecostals, we are supposed to be like that. And there was a scenario a couple of years ago that it, I think it was appropriate for us to speak about our opinion or how we believed regarding certain issues that were going on. And I think the common thought of of the church was kind of not not necessarily to bow down and comply but don't don't look like you're making a scene don't you know don't be so opinionated that you're um you're look don't 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 go against what everyone else is doing because it'll make us look bad yeah like like we're don't we're the church look bad yeah and so it was very confusing because I thought it was a really great opportunity of a time for us to be able to have our voice as a as you saw a lot of people in the Bible do. But at that time, it was almost like, you know, don't, 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 don't do that because then you're get, we're going to look a little too peculiar. Well, I, I, I can see where you're I can see where you're coming from, but there's got to be a of course. 
I'm I'm from a different I'm cut from a different cloth. I don't care. Well, the generation I I, it's it's one of those things where I'm you know yeah. I've been through all of the junk and been looked at in you know in a in a downcast way and I I've got to the point to where none of that stuff matters. If I'm going to believe in God, I'm going to believe in God and there's nobody going to stop me. If I'm going to have an opinion about God or anything anything else, now again, I'm not going to shove it down somebody's throat. Exactly. But I will tell them. And that's the thing is, we weren't, you know, there are times that we weren't shoving anything down our throat. Like, I, I was at my family member's house, actually one of the family members I was talking about that I've noticed a change as they've gotten older of not being as bold. But here's a, it was it was regarding the situation a couple of years ago, just over there for a visit, and it was brought up. You know, asked me what I was going to do pertaining to that. And so I was like, well, you know, this is my, these are my thoughts. And it full blown turned into an eruption from this person. And it was just like, okay, so I'm not allowed to have my thoughts or my opinion. And this is somebody that is not in church, but it, it's like, you're not allowed to have your thoughts or opinions. (laughs) And, um, I, I did see that not on that quite at that level, but I did see that from people that are like-minded in the same faith that I am too. But um, it's a new generation, yeah. you know. Like Sister Feigl was saying, it's there's not old Pentecost and new Pentecost, and I agree with her. But to a point, there there's a new mindset with Pentecost. Are they're retiring and they're handing, you know, handing their their leadership over to a young group and uh just just yesterday i was talking to a friend of mine that lives in another state and what's going on in her church the changes that are starting to come are pretty alarming like standard wise what i know this church always upheld has a new literally just within the last few months has new leadership that is younger and immediately on their on their page you can see lines that are crossed that would not have been crossed with older leadership it's like whoa okay that's kind of scary yeah Mm -hmm. you just have to teach their own yeah and again i'm i I've told Terry that, you know, I do I want, you know, do you want friends? Do you want people to like you? Do you want, you know, to have fellowship? Yeah. But, you know, part of having a friendship and fellowship is being able to voice opinions, even if they may not be the same. Right. Agree to disagree. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, if, whether and I'll be honest, if it's family, friends, whatever, if I lose out, if I lose out on them because I want to believe the way I want to believe, how can I say this without sounding? So be it. No, I agree. I yeah. just I don't I I have well, going, I I put it to you this way. I went along with some people. 
I uh, accompanied them, went along with them, and it took me in a whole other another direction. It's it's time to stand up and believe what you believe. It really is. Yeah, and the Bible says, you know, like if we do that, if we're afraid of, if we go along with people, it's because we don't want to offend them. And the Bible says, you know, would you rather offend man or would you rather offend God? If you're going against your core belief so you don't want to offend somebody, but that's really not what you believe and biblically, then you're you're allowing yourself to to offend God and his word rather than your friend or your family. So yeah, I'm the same way too. It's like, you know what, I love you, you're my family, but you're not my salvation. And yeah. Right. You know. Sorry. No, that's perfectly, that's right in line. Right in line. Yeah. That is what this whole lesson is about. Anything else? I'm not afraid to live alone and I'm not afraid of the nursing home. Nursing home's still better than prison. Just saying. Hey, sometimes it's like a little, like a resort. It's like you just push the buzzer and... Well, there may come a day when they say you're in the nursing home. In order for us to continue paying for your nursing home, you must take this mark or this shot in the shoulder or whatever. I don't yeah. be here anymore. I'll be com combative. I'll be that old combative resident. All right. Next week is one of my favorite lessons is the seven trumpets. So looking forward to that. We will see you all next week.